This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Mo- personal, fi- personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool, and of course, he's also the advisor on the Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. It's awesome. Thank you, Allison, for that bit of happiness. For I would have said that if you weren't sitting here. Really? Yeah. That's nice. So today we're going to take a look at financial rules of thumb. Those awesome little shortcuts that help us make our financial decisions, like how much should I have in an emergency fund? How much do I need to retire? And how much should I spend on a car or a house? We'll talk about the rules and the exceptions to the rules. We're also going to answer your question about shorting stocks and help you score this Valentine's Day with a few pickup lines that are so money. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Time for a little Answers Answers. And this week's question comes from Grant. He writes, I love the podcast. I listen every week. Which, coincidentally, is exactly the frequency we recommend you listen to our podcast. So, good job, Grant. He wants to know, I have a question about selling short. I get the basic. It goes down. I make money. Could you dig a little deeper and give me a more technical explanation of how it works? How can I be selling something I don't technically own? Is it ever a good idea for a beginner investor to mess with selling short, or should I leave it to the pros? Well, hello, Grant, and thank you for listening again this week. When you sell something short, it's usually stocks, and you are betting that the stock is going to go down. Here's how it works. So, let's say there's a company, we'll call it Stinktronics. You think it's over, overpriced at 100 bucks a share. You're going to go to your broker, and my broker, fortunately, is Allison, and I'm going to borrow 100 shares from you. I get the 100 shares, and I immediately sell them. 100 shares at $100 a pop. That's $10,000 that cash sits in my brokerage account. I have to pay interest on this loan, and if Stinktronics pays a dividend, I have to pay you, Allison, because you don't have the stock right now. But in the meantime, I hold on to it, hoping that it goes down. Let's say I'm right. It drops to $80 a share. I go out in the market, buy 100 shares, I pay $8,000. Remember, I got $10,000 for selling it. I now pay $8,000, give you back your shares. I made a profit of $2,000. That's the good way it ends up. The bad way is the stock can go up. And the problem is, there's no limit on how high a stock can go up. It can go to 200, 300, 500. At some point, you have to what's called cover that short by going out in the market and buying those shares. If it went to $500 a share, you'd be paying $50,000 to get those shares so I could pay you back those shares. In the meantime, I paid that interest. So, generally speaking, the Motley Fool is not really big on shorting. Because we are long-term buy-and-hold investors, shorting tends to be a much more short-term type of strategy. Plus, there is that sort of theoretically unlimited downside. You could end up paying way more than your original investment. The few times where we do recommend it, or you'll see it in any of our services, is a way to hedge your portfolio. So, for example, if you own a lot of stocks, you don't you're a little worried that you're overexposed to stocks, but you don't want to sell some of them and pay taxes. You can instead sell other stocks short as a hedge so that if the market does go down, you've made some money with your short position. If the market goes up, 
overall you've made money, but because of that hedge, you lost a little, a little bit of money too. It's sort of like insurance. But for most people, we think you should avoid shorting. Just stick with buying a company that you love and holding on to for a long time. All right, Grant. So there you go. Bottom line answer is just leave it to the pros. You know, way back in the '90s, uh, David Gardner and Jeff Fisher shorted a company, and the CEO or president of that company asked them to come to his office in New York City. Can you name this person? Rick can. Oh, Rick can name it. Rick, who was it? That would be one Donald Trump. Donald Trump. What? Way back in the 90s, David and Jeff, I think it was just him, went to Trump Towers, wherever he was working, and he tried to argue with them about why you should not short Trump Enterprises or whatever the stock was at that time. That's crazy. I think they came away feeling like he was a charming fellow, but I think they still continue to short the company. <laughs> I'm going to have to go talk to David about that. That's we'll really to, interesting. We'll have to dig up that little piece of full history That's a somewhere. good nugget right there. Yeah. I don't remember Charming being one of the descriptions that they gave of that encounter. I maybe made that one up. Maybe I'm thinking of Amorosa. I can't remember. But to bring up an old apprentice reference. <laughs> <laughs> Always topical here at Motley Fool Answers. <laughs> oh, all right. Thank you. Grant, I hope that helps you out. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at answers at fool.com. I love financial rules of thumb because they give me a general idea of if I'm making the right decision and they don't require a lot of hard work or math. Not to be a Malibu Stacy doll here, but I don't I don't really love math. So today we're gonna tackle five rules of thumb, actually more than that, more than five rules of thumb that require minimal math and will help you get a better handle on your finances. Yes, it will. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I get tired of talking and just want to hear hear your voice and then all right. And then and that's what I get. You're correct, sir. (laughs) I totally agree with everything you just said. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. First, all right. So the first rule of thumb we're going to tackle is how much should you be worth? Right. And this comes from a great book called The Millionaire Next Door, uh, which was a study back in the '90s of real life millionaires, and they updated it a couple times later on, and found that real life millionaires in America are actually People who save a lot and live relatively simple lives, people who look rich, actually um, aren't millionaires because they owe so much money. So, but they came up with a benchmark to determine if you're on track to become one of these everyday millionaires. And the formula, I'm sorry, it will require a little math. Mm, it's okay. I'm okay with a little math. Is your age times your annual pre-tax income divided by ten? So, let's say you're 40 years old, you make $100,000 a year. Your net worth should be about $400,000. And net worth includes your investment portfolio, your home equity, including all the stuff in your house, all the things that you bought. Um, and that lets you, that's sort of a, a benchmark to where you are accumulating enough based on your income. And that's what I like about this. It's not saying like you should have a million dollars at this point in your life. It's basically, given your income, are you what they would term a prodigious accumulator of wealth? That's really an important um, metric. Are you accumulating a lot compared to how much you make? The problem with it. Here's the exception to the here's rule. The exception is that you're only looking at one year's worth of a salary, and it's kind of assuming that generally you've been earning around that amount your whole life. But that's probably not true. I mean, myself, I started out as a very lowly paid 
uh, elementary school teacher. And now I'm a lowly paid fool, which Aww. is still different. Still different. We That's pay good. you in hugs and, That's and, true. and adoration. And for people who are just starting out in their careers, if you're in your early 20s, it doesn't really help. It's for people more in their 30s, 40s, and 50s as a benchmark on whether they've amassed an appropriate amount of wealth given how much they've earned. All right. Next one. How much should you spend on stuff is kind of this general category. And the mm-hmm. first one is overall budgeting related. Right. And the, the rule of thumb here is to, first of all, devote 50% of your income to necessities. You're talking like taxes, mortgage, food. Then 30% to discretionary purchases, vacation, entertainment, things like that. And then 20% to future financial goals. So, most people think of retirement, but could also be saving for a car, college, down payment for a home. Um, What I like about that is, I always think it's helpful for people to differentiate between the things they have to buy and the things they may not have to buy if they don't, if for some reason they don't have the money. 20% for saving for future financial goals, if you start early enough, that's actually probably more than you need to. Um, What some people also throw in here is how much you donate to charity. Um, And I would put that in this category as well. The flip side of that is if you're not starting, if you haven't started saving for retirement, for example, until your 40s, 20% is is really where you should be, if not a little bit higher. So then 50% to necessities, 30% for discretionary, 20% for the future. Right. Where do I stick in eating out? Because we do a lot of eating out. You're going to tell me to put that in discretionary, aren't you? I would it's say you could food. fairly split that. Okay. All right. The degree to which it ext- it is above the amount you would pay at the grocery store, that's the discretionary. How about that? Oh, that requires so some math, too. So much. All right. Next one. Buying a home. So, the rule of thumb is don't pay more than two and a half times your annual income. Now, it could be the price of the home or the mortgage. And... The more you live in an area where it's particularly expensive to live, like Washington DC, like where we live, Washington DC, it's more realistic to target that as your mortgage, two and a half times your annual income. What I like about this is that it does put a cap on it, and it puts a different cap other than what the mortgage brokers and the realtors will say to you, because of course they're going to want you to buy more. But so much of our spending, is anchored to our house, our utilities, our repairs, our taxes, um, the people we live around, and generally we try to emulate their spending behavior. So, starting with living in a place that is reasonable priced compared to your income is a good way to keep a lot of your other expenses in check. So, if I make um, a hundred thousand a year, then I should only I shouldn't buy a house that's more than two hundred fifty thousand right. dollars, which is not going to work in the Washington, D.C. Right. area. So then you do it to a mortgage that's 250000 which means, even in this area, that means you have to save quite a bit for a down payment. Still a challenge, but I think it's something that's reasonable to shoot for. All right, next one. Buying a car. Yeah, and the most common rule of thumb here is 24-10 rule. You put down 20%. You don't get a loan that's longer than four years and that the payment shouldn't exceed 10% of your income. All right. Uh, according to the Kelly Blue Book, as of last May, a new car costs $33,000, a little bit more. 
um, and it's gone up. According to Edmonds, a used car is $18,000, um, which has also gone up significantly. So it certainly costs more to buy a car these days. But for me personally, anytime you can get a good used car, you're, you're putting yourself well ahead. Yeah, you Brokamps ride all swanky. I know. I know you like to dump tons of money into your into your cars. That is not true. We did, we, so we, here we are. It's 2016. Our, our last car purchase was a couple of months ago. It was a 2012 minivan. We drive a 2003 Jetta diesel. So, nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, the car we got rid of uh, had 170,000 miles on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, like there's... One rule of thumb that I remember someone telling me when I was younger is you should sell a car once it reaches 100,000 miles. That's a ridiculous rule of thumb. You can definitely have your car go much Run longer than that. Run that thing into the ground. Absolutely. All right. Next one. How much do you need to retire? What's the rule of thumb here? And this is a rule of thumb really for people who are getting pretty close to retire. So, um, first of all, you've got to know that once you retire, your expenses drop by about a third or so. Social Security is designed in a way that it will replace about a third of your income. So if you think of that, you need to replace about a third of what you have from your portfolio, from your savings. A good rule of thumb is to take that amount and multiply it by 15 to 20. 20 is probably better as a safe uh, safe number to shoot for, but you really need to focus on how much of your expenses are going to be covered by your portfolio. Because some people will see this type of rule of thumb. I think twenty times my annual salary—that's a huge amount. Right. But a lot of it, a lot of those expenses are going to go away, and a lot of it will be covered by Social Security. And if you have a, in terms of the exception, a lot of people have other sources like a pension. Or they have a house in the Washington D.C. area, but they are going to sell it <laughs> right. and move to another uh, another area of the country. They'll realize a significant amount of money, pay much less in taxes, so they won't have to have as much squirreled away either. So basically, if I have ninety thousand in expenses and I'm facing retirement, a thirty thousand of that is going to go away because I'm going to be spending less in retirement. Another 30,000, well not really. Another third is going to be covered by social security in theory, and so I just need to come up with 30,000 times 20 to 15. Right. I think that's a that's a great rule of thumb. I love that one. <laughs> just doing the math. I can do math. I can do it. <laughs> I got straight A's, okay? Kids, straight A's. I just didn't enjoy it. I much preferred to just write about my feelings. In English class, then, because math made me feel, you know, sad. All right. Next one. How much do I need in my emergency fund? A lot of people have probably read the, the general advice that you need three to six months of something. And it's that something, <laughs> the something that people don't agree on. It could be three to six months of your salary, it could be three to six months of your expenses. I say three to six months at the most of the things you have absolutely have to pay. So, mortgage or rent, food, not going out, the grocery kind food, grocery store food. That's as much as you need. As as much as I believe in having money set aside, the truth is most people don't have these big emergencies that we're worried about. Plus, if it happens, you do have backups. 
you do have other sources of income, probably. I actually wrote many years ago about how I used my Roth IRA as an emergency fund because I know very few people use their emergency fund. I wanted to put it somewhere that would grow tax free. And with a Roth IRA, if you need to access the money, you can get the contributions out tax and penalty free. It's the earnings that if you take them out too soon, that you have to pay penalty and taxes. So I put that money in there knowing that I probably won't need it. It's going to grow. But if I do need it, I can get to it. We get that question fairly often. What, where do I stash my emergency fund? Yeah. And you think a Roth IRA is a good option? I think, I think, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's somewhat heresy, of course. It, it's a slippery slope where you start thinking of a Roth IRA as something other than for retirement. But when you think of multiplying must-pay expenses by three to six months, that's a lot of cash for some people. It's going to be very difficult to amass that. And I hate the thought of people not contributing to an IRA just because they want to get all this cash on the side that chances are they're not going to use. It's and it's just going to sit there and earn nothing. Yeah. All right, last one. This is, when will my portfolio double the rule of thumb? When we were in the planning meeting, you were like, well, of course, Alice, and you know the rule of 72, so I don't know if this one's very interesting. And I was like, I don't know the rule of 72. What's the rule of 72? And so, I don't know, I made you talk about this one. Well, the rule of 72 has been around for centuries. I think the first mention of it was in an Italian mathematics book in the 1400s. And even, really? And even there, the way it was written, it was clear that it probably existed before then. It wasn't like, hey, everyone, listen to this awesome thing I made up that you can read about in Italian in this great mathematics book at a time when probably very few people could read. I don't know. What was the literacy rate of Italy back in the 1400s? I don't know, but let's talk about it for a while. <laughs> anyway, so, rule of 72. This is one thing that my mom taught me when I was younger. Basically, it is there are various ways to use it, but one way is what return do I have to earn in order for my money to double? If I am earning 7%, divide 72 by 7, I get 10, it'll take about 10 years. It's not exact, it's close though. Or, flip side, let's say I'm earning 9% a year on my portfolio. How long will it take for it to double? Divide 72 by 9, it's going to take about 8 years. Um, I often think of in terms of inflation. If inflation is 3% going forward, divide 72 by 3, that means what costs $100 today in 24 years will cost $200. One of those things that financial planners often think about in terms of inflation. I know you all sit around thinking, I wonder what inflation is going to be in the future. This is just kind of a handy dandy little rule of thumb that can be applied to any time you're looking at interest, I guess, like interest and. Like right. Okay. Interest in retirement savings and and things like that. Yeah. Um. And like our other rules of thumb, it doesn't always work. So, for example, what if I want my money to double, um, in one year? So you divide seventy-two by one, you get seventy-two. Well, if you earn seventy-two percent, your money's not going to double. You need to earn a hundred. Right. So at extremes, it actually doesn't work. But as a good rule, rule of, of thumb, thumb, it works just fine. Do you know um, the the little fun little rule of thumb about the nines, like doing multiplication about nines? I don't know this one. Are you ready for this? Do you know this one, Rick? Okay, hold your hands out. Hold your hands out. I have ten fingers, by the way. You have ten fingers. All right. Let's say you want to multiply five by nine. Then you would bend down your thumb because that's your fifth digit, 
and you've got four fingers and five fingers up. 45. Well, that's pretty interesting. All right, so let's multiply uh, two by nine. You put down your ring finger, and you've got one and eight. Isn't that cool? This is good radio. Yeah, I know you can cut it, but because probably listeners are driving right now and trying to look at their fingers. But isn't that cool? Wow, I never knew that one. Huh. So there are a ton of rules of thumb out here, out out here. There's out on the plains. There are a ton of rules of thumb out there. Uh, I love these all. So hopefully we can do like five more, five plus more rules of thumb sometime in the future. There are more thumbs where these came from. All right, listeners, if you have any rules of thumb that you like to use to manage your money, share them with us. I'd like to hear about them so I can do another show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Email them to us at answers at fool.com or also you can hit us up on Twitter. We're at Answers Podcast. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Says being savvy with money isn't sexy. Certainly not our spouses. And with Valentine's Day around the corner, we wanted to offer up some of our very best in money-related pickup lines so that you can find true financial love just like we did. Huh, bro? Absolutely. Not with each other. We have our own spouses. So if you walk up to someone and say these lines, if they even vaguely understand what you're saying, you know you're in the money. Literally and figuratively. Who better to deliver these lines than Johnny Weathersby, the man who makes his ladies a line item in every budget? All right, Johnny, take it away. All right, ladies. If you join my plan, I'll match your contributions. My interest in you is compounding by the minute. Hey, girl, want to come back to my place and see my pink sheets? My portfolio includes a number of diverse positions. I want to hold you for the next three to five years. Baby, can I get your digits? I'd like to put in a call option. I would like to extend the maturity and duration of this bond. Tonight, let's role play a hostile takeover. Our merger would create synergies, deepen our integration, and open up opportunities for vertical and horizontal scaling. Let's get together and create a few spinoffs. I want to get one up on your Wall Street. I'll be the monger to your Buffett, but in a sexy way. really incredible. That'll do it for today, kids. The show is edited lovingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Make love and money, people. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs>